All right, well, good morning. My name is Doug, uh, one of the pastors here at Parkview and a campus pastor here at East. It's a joy to be able to be with you in worship this morning. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to go ahead and take it out. As a church, we are sort of marching our way through the book of Acts. And this morning, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 11. Specifically, we're looking at verses 19 through 30. So Acts 11, 19 through 30. Uh, If you need a copy of God's Word, you will be greatly helped this morning if you have it. You could just put your hand up in the air, and Craig's back there with some Bibles. He'll put one in your hand, all right? So, um, but you'll be greatly helped if if your copy is open in front of you. Um, As we have been walking through this book of Acts together, we've been seeing that King Jesus expands. It's one of the themes that we see is he expands his kingdom as his people proclaim his word. Throughout the book of Acts, we are exploring the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus um, as his people proclaim his word. Last week, we looked at a monumental moment, not just in the book of Acts, but also a monumental moment in all of redemptive history as uh, Peter follows the prompting of God and enters the house of Cornelius, a centurion, a, a Gentile from the land of Caesarea, and, and the word gets back to the apostles and the brothers um, that, that he has received the gift of salvation, that this Gentile man has become a follower of Jesus. In verse 18, we hear their response as the church in Jerusalem catches wind of, of really an amazing event. And the response in verse 18 is this, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. John Stott, in his commentary in the book of Acts, calls this an epic-making declaration by the conservative Jewish leaders of the Christian church. This theme of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God will become, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, it will become a major theme that we will see throughout the remaining portion of the book of Acts. The Gentile, the gospel is for the Gentile world. This week and next, we're gonna look at two stories which sort of bridge the transition from the first Gentile convert to the systematic evangelization of the Gentile world through the missionary efforts of Paul. Next week in chapter 12, we will see um, what happens as intense opposition is inflicted on the people of God by the hands of King Herod. And this week, we're gonna finish up chapter 11 and we will look at the expansion of the church north to the city of Antioch. So I'm gonna read our passage for us. It's a short one this morning. Last week, we covered massive ground. um, And uh, this week, it'll be a little shorter, okay? A little easier to follow, hopefully. So I'm gonna read God's word for us and then we'll dive in. I'll pray, pray for us and we'll dive in. This is chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And the great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and, and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word as it comes to us this morning. We know it is true. We believe it to be eternal, Lord, and we ask that the effects that it has had on people throughout history, what happened here this morning, Lord, that you would take your word, that through your spirit you would apply it to your people, you would write it on our hearts, you would use it to shape and to form us to be the people you've designed us to be, that you have called us to be, that you have empowered us to be, so that we might walk forward in obedience and humble submission to you and your word. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths and write them on our hearts right now. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I'm not going to say how long, but I was in college at the university, and a, uh, I met a friend uh, who became, during one of my years, one of my closest friends. He was an exchange student from Japan. His name was Tomo. Tomo was a follower of Jesus, grew up in Japan in a, in a Christian home, and he had a deep, deep love for the Lord. While he was here, there was a few things that we shared in common. One of those was a love for baseball. He was a huge fan of Ichiro. And he had sort of, uh, one of his ambitions was to see Ichiro play baseball before he returned back to Japan. The other thing that we shared in common was he was a big fan of John Piper. John Piper is a preacher in Minneapolis at Bethlehem Baptist, and uh, he was a big fan. So oftentimes we would watch baseball, we would listen to John Piper preach. We had a, a wonderful relationship. And uh, Tomo, upon sort of before he left to go back to, to Japan, he had two wishes, which were in line with these two affections. One was he wanted to see firsthand John Piper preach, and the other was that he wanted to see Ichiro play baseball. And I was determined as a friend, uh, maybe selfishly so, to uh, experience both of these things with him and help him sort of check these off of his bucket list. And so we got tickets to a White Sox game. Ichiro was playing for the Mariners, drove into Chicago one day to watch Ichiro play, and wouldn't you know it, as we were walking into the stadium, um, I, we were just met by many Japanese who were walking out of the stadium. It turned out that Ichiro was not a part of the lineup, and uh, let's just say Tomo was slightly disappointed, all right? On the, second, on the second area that I wanted to sort of help him check off his bucket list, he was not nearly as disappointed. We were able to, one Sunday, we had a, a day store to ourselves and drove up to Minneapolis, went to church, and uh, were able to sit under John Piper's preaching and just sort of see Bethlehem Baptist in action. And uh, at that time, I was driving a Dodge Duster. Many of you don't even know what that is, and you're probably better off for it, all right? It was like a 1990. I don't know what year it was, but it was just totally falling apart. The, the tape deck at that time, tapes were what you would listen to, and the tape deck didn't work. There was no, no radio that was working, and Tomo fell asleep on the way home after about, I don't know, 20 minutes of driving, and so it was just me, and I had a little boom box that I set on the dash that was out of batteries, and it was just total silence, basically, is what I'm trying to say, and it was a miserable ride. 
but on the way back, I was contemplating, I was thinking about sort of our experience at Bethlehem Baptist. I was sort of marginally at that time involved at Parkview and wasn't really involved uh, that much in the life of the church. And I was, I was driving back and next to me, um, between me and Tomo was a bulletin of the church. And I kind of casually would look down at the bulletin. One of the things I, I noticed and reflected on on my way back home was how many things this church was doing actively in the community. How well they were sort of a city that sort of positioned themselves in the city and for the city in some ways. And um, they, they had ministry after ministry, opportunity after opportunity for folks in their congregation to connect, to serve, to be a blessing to their community and to the city around them. And as I was driving back, I was thinking, now what was originally sort of drawn to, I was drawn to about this church was their exposition and their focus on the preaching of God's word. John Piper was a, is a phenomenal expositor preaches, for me, a, phenomenal, a great example, somebody I've learned a lot from, but I was drawn initially because of the focus on the word in the church. Driving back, I was surprised and shocked by how involved and invested they were in the community as well. And for me, it became, this was sort of before Spot, Faith Academy, some of the other initiatives that we have here at Parkview, it became sort of an example, an example. It's not a perfect church, but it became an example of what church could be. What we see here this morning in Acts chapter 11 is very similar. God gives it to us, the church at Antioch, as an example of what church can be. Antioch is a phenomenal church. As we read through the book of Acts, one of the things that we will, sort of an important tool that we have to apply is asking ourselves as we read through not just the book of Acts, but really uh, most of the New Testament is one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? As we come across situations, examples, stories in the book of Acts, is this prescribed, you must do this, or is it describing what was before, what took place? All sorts of things happening that we must be careful as we read our Bible to ask the question, is this prescribed or is it simply a description? Is, it, is what I'm reading right now mandatory for every church to follow exactly ever afterwards? You know, an example would be when Paul sets out from the Middle East to go to Rome. He goes by boat around the Turkish coast. We know they get shipwrecked and so forth and so on. Nobody would suggest that a Christian leader today wanting to make the exact same journey would follow the exact same process. You likely would, would go to Tel Aviv, get a plane that would take you to Rome. That's how any reasonable person would do it today, okay? That which was so, so, so much of the, the culture and the day kind of bound how things, determined how things were happening, simply wouldn't even be possible if you wanted to try and follow them, follow them exactly. Some of the communities aren't even there today. Many would say this is true for many of the extraordinary things that we would see happen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. If you're familiar, we'll see this story in a number of weeks, possibly months, depending on how long it takes us to get through the book of Acts. But we, some of you may know the story where many are bringing handkerchiefs to Paul so they would touch his skin. And then those, those handkerchiefs, after having touched Paul, they would be then used to, to heal others, to go to others and touch them and, and heal them and cast out demons and evil spirits. One question you might be asking is, if it is prescribed, then 
should we be starting up a handkerchief ministry here at Parkview East? Or is it simply describing something extraordinary that God did at a particular time through a particular people in a particular way? It's important for us as a church, as we walk through the Bible, to be constantly asking ourselves this question. Folks, this is, as, as the church of Jesus Christ, this is our story. This is our story. And we, as we apply this word to our place and our time and our people, we have to be thinking through what does this mean for us? And it requires wisdom and discernment. Luke's purpose for Acts was to describe the acts of the apostolic church, to encourage us today, the ongoing church, to model the larger sense of proclaiming the gospel to the entire world. Not necessarily requiring that we replicate every specific example. That being said, what we see in Acts chapter 11, as we peel back the curtain and peer into the church of Antioch, is an extraordinary example of what the church can be and what God can do through the church. This morning, I wanna ask you a simple question or invite you into a simple process. I wanna invite you this morning maybe throughout the course of the week, to dream, to dream. Some of us are in the regular habit of dreaming about what our life might look like, what a marriage potentially could be like, what raising a family, maybe we've dreamed and seen ourselves in that role before, what a particular career could look like, what life can be like. Many of us, many of you are in the habit of dreaming about your life on a regular basis. What will life be like when I retire or when I have so much money in the bank? This morning, what I want to encourage you to do, and maybe you don't do this as regularly, is to dream about what your church can be like. Dream about what your church can be like. As we dream, this passage reminds us of the endless possibilities of what God can do through his people by his power. So, let's dream together. Point number one, as we do this, we're gonna look at sort of a couple of different things. First thing that we're gonna see as we look at the church of Antioch is the pattern of church growth in Antioch. Hopefully, as you dream, church growth is a part of that dream. What did church growth look like? What was the pattern that we see present in our text in Antioch? First thing is that we see that the word of God was foundational. The first part of this pattern is that the word of God was foundational. See it in verses 19 through 26. And I feel as I say this, much like a broken record. And if you've been here much lately, I should sound like a broken record because Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to hear this message over and over and over again. The word of God is foundational for church growth. It's essential. Verses we read like in Six and seven, and the word of God continued to increase, of, sorry, of chapter 
of chapter two, the word of God continues to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Up until our study to this point, we've seen over and over and over again, the word is spoken and it increases. We see it again in our text today. It's a repeated reminder, and it's a reminder that we need because we're a forgetful people. I'm a forgetful person. And so God has written it in his word over and over and over again because he wants us to understand that this is a word that is essential for church growth. Look at verses 19 and 20, and we see that, that, that it was essential for the evangelism of the lost. The proclamation of the word was necessary for the evangelism of the lost. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. What were they doing? Speaking the word. It says initially to no one except Jews, but then some men from Cyprus and Cyrene on coming to Antioch, they spoke the word to Hellenists. Also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Their plan for church growth and expansion began with the proclamation of the word. The focus was initially on the Jews, we're told, and it appears that these anonymous Christians had not heard potentially the story that we just read last week of Peter and Cornelius and the Gentile Pentecost that took place as a result. Yet we're told that some of the, them from Cyprus and Cyrene, they spoke to Gentiles. They shared the word with Greek speaking non-Jews. The church that came out of Antioch was birthed out of evangelism, out of a proclamation of God's word. We don't know the messengers. It says simply that there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. We don't know their names, yet their impact was massive. It was tremendously significant. We're told that they, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. We may not know the messenger's names, but we know what their message was. It was that Jesus Christ was Lord. There were no names, likely they had no budget, they had no building, they probably had no strategic plan that they were following. Just a conviction of truth and an obedience to the commission that God had called them to. In our day and age, this is such an important point for us to understand. These are anonymous people. In our culture, in our day, we are sort of caught up in sort of a, even in the, in the ministry world, a sort of celebrity status. These individuals don't even have a name. For the most part, this is a group of nobodies that God chose to do something extraordinary through. We don't know the messengers, but we do know the message. They were preaching Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Their message was simple. They were proclaiming the gospel. So the word of God was necessary as they evangelized in this area. It was also necessary in establishing this group of people in the faith. The story goes on. The effect of their evangelism, we're told in verse 21, was that a great number believed were added to their number. The church in Jerusalem catches wind of what's going on in Antioch and sends Barnabas. He comes and is delighted by what he discovers, what he sees, and he encourages them to remain faithful and the result is more are added. So there is exponential numeric growth at the church of Antioch. But we discover that the growth was not just a matter of numbers. It was not just a matter of multiplication. The growth took place at Antioch. It wasn't just about multiplication. It was also growth related to maturation. They grew numerically, but they also grew in depth. And the key strategic feature, which produced growth in both areas, numerically and 
depthly <laughs> was they were preaching God's word. That's what they did. They proclaimed God, the exact same strategy. Allowed them to grow deeply in the Bible. What exactly did they teach when, when Paul sent for Barnabas and Barnabas came and together we told that they spend a year together studying the scriptures. John Stott says, they must have taught them about Christ, making sure that the converts knew both the facts and the significance of his life, death, resurrection, exaltation, spirit gift, present reign, and future coming. Christ as the focus of their learning seems as with time that we're told that they, they would eventually earn the name Christians. Goes on to say in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Luke has used disciples, he's used the term saints, brethren, believers, those being saved, people of the way. The message essentially was that Jesus is Lord. And over and over again, as they are diving deeper and deeper into who Christ are, this is, this is an area, a pagan world, where the idea of, of Christ as Messiah would have been a foreign concept to the vast majority of the population. Yet, Christ was used to identify them as a people. That term itself, these folks learned Christ. They learned Christ. And they became known for what they grew to know. And this is a part of what an essential mark of being a follower of Jesus is. A disciple of Jesus is someone who learns Christ. Gives yourself to the never-ending exploration of all that Jesus is, recognizing that we will never find enough, never discover enough of who Christ is. There's always more to learn. That's why Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did they learn when they opened up their Old Testament, when they sat in a circle at church with Paul and Barnabas in an assembly with other brothers and sisters? What did they learn? Answer simply, more and more of Jesus. More and more of Jesus. Not just was the word of God, as we consider the pattern of these people, was the word of God foundational, but we also see as we go on that good works were natural. Verses 27 to 30 shows us this. We learn that the mission to the Greeks was authenticated by a ministry of good works. Told that prophets came from Jerusalem to this newly founded church. One of them stood up and told of a coming famine that would come over the entire Roman world. That's the prophecy. We're told in verses 29 and 30 how the church at Antioch responded to this prophecy, to this news, to the, the news of coming hardship. Verse 29 says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It gives us this, this reference, this description, this pattern shows us sort of a glimpse into the heart of the church at Antioch. They display sacrificial mercy and generosity to those around them, to those who are in need. 
a natural result of their salvation, the, or you could say the fruit of their salvation is a demonstration through good works, especially to those of the house of God, especially to those who are in need. These people are committed, not only, not only we see, to learning Christ, but their commitment is also to living Christ. Like Jesus, they can be described as a people who are mighty in word and who are mighty in deed. Their conviction and commitment to the word of God produces in them good works which bless the people of God. We're told that they give each according to their own ability. They send gifts with Paul and Barnabas. This is Ultimately, we're told in chapter 12 that the completion of the mission in verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they had completed their service, bring with them John, whose other name was Mark. In chapter 12, it tells us how the, the mission sort of completes and how they return back. As we consider their generosity, as we consider their good works, it's important to notice how selfless these people are. Their, their ministry was marked through compassion and generosity. They are told of something that is coming their way over the entire Roman world. There's some confusion over exactly when this famine took place, but the point that Luke wants us to understand is that these folks, as they heard news of something that was coming for them, their response was to take everything they could to their own ability and give it to somebody else who was potentially in greater need, who might experience the famine first. Knowing their, their response was not to, okay, well, this news is coming, we better hoard up and just protect our own. Just look out for number one. Instead, we're told, they gave each to their own ability and they sent it away through the hands of Saul and Barnabas. This church didn't ask, well, how much is it gonna cost? Instead, their question was, how much can I give? And they gave. This is corporate. I think the other thing I love about this is you see the body of Christ, while there are multiple assemblies, there's an assembly in Judea, there's an assembly in Antioch. There is solidarity between the two of them. Their need is their responsibility because they're one people. Christ died to make one new man. And they generously give to support their brothers and sisters as they have need. What's also we learn as we consider what God does through Antioch is that this church is a church that is, becomes a base of operation for Paul's ministry, for the missionary journey that he goes on with Barnabas and later with Silas in Acts 15 and 18. It's essentially a launching pad. The church at Antioch essentially becomes a launching pad for the worldwide missions. They are a church whose commitment to God's word produces good works. Thirdly, we also see that in this church, the relationships that sort of define the church are radically unusual, very, very unusual. We see how Barnabas comes to sort of see what is happening here. When he gets there, he's so surprised. He sees God's grace clearly at work. He commits to staying with them. He sends for Paul to come. At this point, they suspect that Paul had been in Tarsus for upwards of six, seven, eight years maybe since his conversion, and now he's coming back, and we see these individuals lean into this community. And what also is remarkable as you think about Bar Barnabas. You know, this is not the first time we've heard about Barnabas. 
Barnabas came to us in chapter four. It's the first time that we discovered him at the sort of a summary of the early church. It says in verses 36 and 37, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. What's so unusual about the relationships that take place at the church of Antioch is that you see essentially discipleship happening. You see the leader, Barnabas, and a man who is known already to us for his generous heart and his generosity, his gift of mercy and compassion and encouragement, you now see replicated throughout the church of Antioch. He's not the only one who's generous now. The whole church is now marked by his generosity. This is a church that prioritized discipleship. Paul and Barnabas with brothers and sisters, teaching them Christ for one whole year and themselves replicated in the people of the church. This is unusual. What makes it even more unusual is when you think about the demographics of Antioch at the beginning of chapter 13, as we talk about the leaders and learn about the leaders of this church, we see that this is a racially, ethnically, culturally diverse group of people. And this is, Antioch at this time would have been the third largest city behind Rome and Antioch. Some estimate as many as 500,000 people would have called Antioch home. 500,000 people. The density of this city would have been ridiculous. People were just jam-packed into this community. And back then, nobody cared for each other. Nobody. One One of the ways, I mean, what we saw happen at Parkview at Central Campus would have been completely unusual. To see somebody hurting, somebody sick, in, in, in New Testament, biblical times, what they would have done with somebody like that is taken them out to the street. But the Christians were different. The Christians offered an alternative community. In a city that didn't just have walls around it, but had walls throughout it separating this demographic from that demographic. Walls separating this race from that race and this culture from this culture. This community was different. Those walls came down. In fact, it was so unusual, it was so different that the rest of the world had to come up with a new term to describe them. They could no longer be described or defined by their identity where their race was concerned or where their, where their ethnicity was concerned or their religion was concerned. The, the rest of the world looked at them and said, who are, how do we even talk about these people anymore? And the name they gave them was Christ. It was a combination of Latin and Greek squished together, Christians. They had a new identity. Their relationships, the way they loved and lived, loved one another and lived together in community was so unbelievable. It just wasn't happening. And it was a pattern that continued. If you're new at Parkview East, so glad that you're here today. There's a few things you ought to know. Here, God's word is foundational. It is. It will be. It is essential to the ministry that he has called us to. We don't try to be cute. You know that if you've been around here. Or flashy. Try to be faithful to God's word. The other thing that you must know is that good works ought to flow from our commitment to God's word as we give ourselves Sunday after Sunday to studying his word. 
as we give ourselves to exploring his word in context of community groups or personally when we meet around coffee at Panera, wherever we meet, that our, our, the idea is not just to learn as much as we can to become you know, like a big head on a, on a stick, but rather that that knowledge flows through our heart, makes its way out into our hands as we serve and love those around us, ourselves. That we're, we're, we're a people who are, try to be known for our good works. And finally, relationships here are unusual. Some of you have experienced that. They're unusual. There's, there's certain things that sometimes the world divides over that we just say, it's not gonna divide us. There, there are so many things that the world says, nope, I'm gonna stay here just with the people who vote like this or who look like this or who like talk like that. We say no. Christ died to make one new man. And in Antioch, they were first called Christians. Relationships are critical. That was my first point. I'm gonna fly through my second point, okay? I promise. That's the pattern that we see in Antioch. Now, here's the deal. If we just stop at the pattern, here's what we will likely feel. If we just say, okay, those are the three things we gotta do, let's get busy, and we stop right there. Do you know what we will be met with over and over and over again? Wild frustration and immense disappointment. Because we will be convinced that we can somehow produce this ourselves. The second point is, not just do we see a pattern of what church growth looks like when we look at Antioch, we also see the power. How is it produced? Where does it come from? Yes, there's some significant leaders here, Barnabas and Paul. God uses them to do amazing things in his church. Was the power that fueled this mission solely reliant on their ability, on their ingenuity or creativity or leadership? Luke wants to make the point very, very clear. The answer to that question is no. The power, rather, came directly from God himself. See, as we dream about what this church can be, what our dream really should, as we pray about that, rather what it should look like is to say, what God might do. Paul does not, Luke does not want us to neglect the power that fueled and created the church at Antioch. He doesn't allow for us to mistake and think it's according to their effort and their work and their ability. He makes it abundantly clear that this growing church was directly the result of what only God could do. Look down at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Barnabas comes and sees what the church in action it looks like. And verse 23 says that he saw the grace of God. This expression, the first expression in verse 21, the hand of the Lord. In my Bible, it's one that I have circled and my notes is like underlined and highlighted and starred. It is an immensely significant phrase. The hand of the Lord was with them. It's a phrase that we discover all throughout the Bible. In a sermon that Francis Schaeffer wrote specifically on this phrase, the hand of God, he explores the beauty of this phrase. He explores what it means, and essentially what he says is two things. This, this is one of God's favorite verses for relating to his people because with this phrase, he communicates two primary things. The first is this, he is a personal God. 
He's a personal God. A number of years ago when we were, uh, when the spot ministry was sort of just growing, there was a ministry in Cabrini Green, the projects of Cabrini Green. Now it's, it used to be called Kids Club, and they changed the name several years ago to By the Hand Ministries. It's an after-school program that works with uh, students that, in the Cabrini Green Projects. You guys are familiar with it, it looks like. Phenomenal ministry. They do great work. But they changed the name to By the Hand because the image of somebody holding a hand and walking together is a powerful image. It communicates a certain relational proximity when you can touch somebody's hand. Like earlier, when, I don't know, Scott or maybe it was Natalie said, go ahead and greet one another. We ask you to enter into each other's space to sort of relationally connect. Some of you have changed seats even since then. It, it communicates a, a sort of personal dynamic. And when God says, the hand of the Lord is with you, he's not saying something insignificant. He's ultimately saying, this is the gospel message, that he's not interested in saving you from a distance. Christ comes to you. He gives himself for you so that you can be with him. God of the Bible, Jesus is a personal God who breaks into our reality. He invades our space. Why? Because he's interested in you. He wants you. He wants to be with you. For some of us, this truth is almost too good to be true. You're sitting here today and you're thinking, you're the only one who really knows your past. You're the only one who really knows what's in your heart right now. And God wants you. So much that he breaks into your reality and then extends his hand to you. It's remarkable. Two, it's not just him communicating how he relates to us on a personal level. It's also telling us very much this phrase, the hand of the Lord. It's also telling us very much, not just does he come to you, but he's at work with you. He's at work in you. And he wants you to join him. That's remarkable. I mean, God can do anything he wants. Yet he wants, he's telling us, to reach out his hand and for you to take it. That's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. Francis Schaeffer goes on and talks about this phrase and how it's used to describe how God creates how he preserves all throughout the Bible, specifically in the book of Psalms. In my sort of daily reading, I read it, this phrase several times just this week. His hand preserves. His hand is used to discipline. His hand cares. His hand protects. One of the most amazing things is his hand invites. The hand that creates, preserves, disciplines, cares, protects, sustains. It also invites in Isaiah 65, too, he says this, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. That's a powerful image, a people rebelling against God, and yet God's hands are continually extended, outreached in their direction while they are running the opposite way. Spreading out his hands, it's an invitation, it's a natural gesture and he's saying, those who've rejected me, who've turned me, who've gone their own direction, I stretch out my hands. For some of us, he's stretching his hands out right now. And he's inviting you to come to him, to take his 
hand and just see what God can do. That's the power that we see at work here at Antioch. It's not their ability. It's not their creativity or the ingenuity. It's the result of one thing. God's hand was with them. Parkview East, God's hand is with us. And what he might do through us, there's no end to. There's no end to. Hand of the Lord is with us this morning. Let's receive his hand and let's just let him have his way and see what happens. So this week, as you are spending time, hopefully in the word, on your knees in prayer, one simple question, going back to the beginning, what is your dream for this church? Just invite you to dream a little this week, all right? Very good.